Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. You know, um, often uh, we will say around here, we are a Jesus church. Weston said that earlier. We don't say we were a Jesus church or we're going to be a Jesus church, although those are true. Um, We say we are a Jesus church because right now in this moment, Jesus is with us here today, February 26, 2023. And praise God he is because we, we need him. We need him, don't we? And I'm excited about today's passage. In fact, actually, if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up. There's men and women around the room who'd love to get a Bible into your hand. Uh, But we're going to be looking at a text today that is just this really great kind of beautiful blend of of something that was going to challenge kind of some of our postmodern sensibilities, but it also has just deep power in it. And I I hope that God is going to move in our midst in a powerful way because it's all about being in relationship with him. So if you you got the Bible, go ahead and turn open to Luke 13, Luke 13. And once you kind of get there, go ahead and jump up to your feet. Well, you don't have to literally jump, but stand up to your feet. If you want to jump, you can. Stand up to your feet. And I'm going to read this text over us. Luke 13, starting in verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he's made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us but he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first will be last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you so much for being our king. And Lord, we thank you today for the fact that you are a king that is present with us And in fact, we just, we invite you to be our teacher today. Would you lead us? Would you mold us? Would you make us? Would you remake us? Those parts of our heart that 
that are kind of out of sync with you, out of step with you, would you guide us towards your heart? Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would be our shepherd today. We love you. Today is all about you. This is all about you. We are here for you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life. Uh, I spent a kind of a chunk, a good season of my life, uh, teaching and training and working with like missionaries and pastors in different parts of the world. But though I have seen some pretty amazing places, uh, most of my travel has been done on a budget as a missionary. Okay, so I have seen uh, some of them. I've been crammed into the cheapest dark corners of discount economy. Okay, where you know where you're eating with your knees, kind of thing. Like I've been there. Okay, uh, I, I have flown Indiana Jones style with like the cargo net in behind you and the sound of like live animals over your shoulder. I've been there. I've done that. It's actually kind of smelly. And, and you know, and, and, and I've, even, I've even had this experience one time a number of years back where I was sitting in the back row of the airplane and I got there to sit down and it was literally like somebody's love seat that they had drilled to the floor of the airplane and looped a seatbelt through. I kid, kid you not, okay? We we're like in the middle of nowhere, India, and that was the plane. That was the plane we we're flying on. So I've been there. I, I have experienced a lot of different things in my travel, but... Nothing prepared me for the first time that my dad paid for me to join him behind the magical door of the luxury airport lounge. <laughs> Any, anybody out there been had that experience before? Yeah, there's a few of you guys out there, gals. Uh, as I walked up to the door and it parted and there was like that beautiful reception desk and two like beautiful, equally beautiful humans behind the counter, you know what I'm saying? And they kind of give off one part vibe of like radical welcome and cross-examination. Like, well, why are you here, lesser one? You know, that kind of feeling, that little bit of vibe that's there. Like, you know, I, 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 I remember kind of getting up to the point going like, I don't know why I'm here. And my dad kind of pulling out his golden ticket, you know? And then suddenly all the questioning was replaced with delight. Welcome into your father's joy. Come, come in, lesser one, come in. And I walked up to the doors and, and the doors parted there, parted open and suddenly angels were singing, <laughs> right? I might, actually, it might've been just the sound of the cello that was playing in the corner, right? And I'm greeted by just the most beautiful, like wood up and down the walls and leather seats everywhere. And this beautiful music and the hum of quiet, very distinct conversations taking place around the room. It's beautiful, so quiet and peaceful, very different than the airport that I had just been in. And there's this endless supply of chef-curated gourmet food and drinks, and every table had like free single-origin chocolate, and everyone was so nice, so friendly. I didn't want to leave, but... Eventually I had to, right? Because it is, after all, an airport. You're there to pass through, right? <sighs> Alas, I've never been back behind those magical doors. <laughs> um, I, I have, though, walked by and, and given the, like, the knowing nod to the, to the people behind the counter, like, yeah, I know what's back there now, as I got in line for my $14 cup of burnt coffee. Um, 
Anyways, I, I think that sometimes when we read passages like this one, um, in the midst of God's love and his compassion, we're reminded of the exclusivity of Jesus. The fact that there's, there's an aspect to him and this kingdom that, that there's an exclusiveness to it, that he that this is actually a kingdom and that he is the king of that kingdom and he holds the keys to that kingdom. We can view Jesus kind of like that host at the front desk, you know, giving entry to whomever the airline finds worthy. And though, though deep down, there is a part of us that likes that feeling of being special, and, and even that feeling of being selected, we also feel the tension of our cultural moment, right? Like, we don't tend to like exclusive beliefs, if we're honest. And we definitely don't like being told what we can or cannot do. It's kind of a part of our culture. It's a part of our day and age. And so we feel the tension in this passage as we read it, thinking like, is that, is that what's going on? But you know, the thing is, I'm not sure that is what Jesus is trying to say here. In fact, if we back up just a few verses to the text before, it points in kind of a different direction. Verses 18 through 21, Jesus tells these two beautiful kingdom parables, two stories that describe a deeper reality about the nature of God's work, God's authority. First, he describes the kingdom uh, to a miraculous mustard seed. And mustard seeds are tiny. They're like the size of like a grain of sand, okay? And they would normally, when they were planted, they would normally grow up to a bush, maybe three or four feet tall, sometimes bigger. But this story has a bit of a surprising twist in it. This, this mustard seed grows up into a tree, a big tree, where birds can literally land in its branches. It starts tiny, but it becomes so immense that birds can make their home in it. And then second, Jesus compares the kingdom to yeast being worked into dough. And kind of the surprising twist in this story is that there's so much flour. It's, it's like enough for 150 loaves. Again, this tiny thing, yeast in a, like a sourdough starter, it infiltrates and permeates into vast quantities of dough. Tiny beginnings leading to an immense impact. Jesus is teaching an important idea that Luke is using to set up the next teaching. The kingdom of God may have humble origins, but its impact, the home that it is creating, is huge. And we, we, you know, 2,000 years later, we get the ability to look back on this and see it from the other side. This, what once started with this carpenter rabbi from Nazareth has now become a family of billions worldwide. Talk about tiny becoming immense. Surprise. With that idea in our mind, Luke tells us in verse 22 that Jesus, he's teaching his way village by village towards Jerusalem. And he says something that sparks the concern of one of his listeners. This mostly Jewish audience would have kind of believed that they were going to heaven because they were Jewish or they, they were getting saved because they were Jewish. And they were left wondering after something Jesus said, like, how many people are going to get in the lounge, Jesus? Like, how many people are going to get through that door? So Jesus responds, verse 24. 
Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try and will not be able to. Notice how Jesus kind of sidesteps the original question and then points the person towards the real issue. He does this all the time. It's kind of like Jesus judo, right? He's really good at like saying like, ah, I know, I know you think we're supposed to be going this way, but we're actually going this way. And he guides his listeners to where his heart lies, the thing that he's trying to accomplish. You think you're going this way, says Jesus, but not so fast. Now, it's important to note that Jesus does not have time for speculation around who is in and who is out. That's, in, that's important to know. In the same way, he doesn't have time for when it's going to happen or whether a helicopter looks like a demon from the book of Revelation. He doesn't go into any of that. No, he knows that all of that is his father's business. Jesus instead makes it personal. He makes it personal. That phrase, make every effort, is one word in the original language, uh, and, it, and it's the word agonizomai. Agonizomai. It means to like compete, fight, struggle, strive. You can literally hear the word agony in it, right? Agonizomai. The idea here is that this will take some intense effort, like an athlete in a race or a soldier on a battlefield. Jesus tells his listeners, you're thinking about this the wrong way. Don't get hung up on who is in and who is out. Just make every effort to get through that door. You catch that? In other passages, Jesus says people are literally violently fighting their way into the kingdom. It's an intense struggle, not for the faint-hearted, which makes us wonder, why is it so hard to get through the door? What's so tough about it? What, what makes this door what it is? Well, notice that word narrow. This is a narrow door. And I think that this gives us a bit of a hint as to why the person listening initially was asking the question in the first place. There's something about the nature of the entry into this place that really matters. He goes on, verse 25 says this. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Jesus, kind of again with the judo, flows into another parable. There's this homeowner who we catch from kind of clues in the text is actually Jesus. Because he was the one that had, he ate with them and he had drank with them and he was the one that had been teaching out on the streets. And he decides that it's time. It's time to get up and close the door to his house. No explanation as to why. No explanation as to when. It just finally happens. Now, we need to catch some nuances in this text. It's very important. First, the word sir is the same word that is often used for Lord. It's a familiar title uh, in this time that for authority of somebody being in authority over. And it was also a title that was often used for Jesus. But it looks like knowing the right title didn't get the people through the door. 
But second, then, then, it, then they say that they ate with him and they drank with him, that they had broken bread, that whether noble or tax collector, they had sat around a table with Jesus. They had done all the Jesus-y kinds of things. But the Jesus-y kinds of things didn't get them through the door. And then third, they had been listening to his teaches, teachings. Some of them had even followed him throughout the country, going to all of his conferences, downloading and binging all of his content, right? But listening to his teaching, seeing him do his mighty works, it didn't get them through the door. What's so important to catch in this text is the emphasis on the fact that the owner, Jesus, doesn't know these people. What's going on here? I mean, is this some sort of divine amnesia? Did the owner just forget about all of his previous dinner guests? Is this some sort of first century ghosting? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that this encounter highlights Jesus' central point. And his central point is this. The most important question isn't whether we know God. It's whether he knows us. Let me say that again. The most important question isn't whether we know God. It's whether he knows us. And that knowledge, it has a certain quality to it. It's the kind of knowing that comes from intimacy and presence, from, from conversation and relationship. It goes beyond just using the right titles or understanding the right information about Jesus or, or, or beyond all of the Jesus-y things, beyond knowledge about God. It is the kind of knowing that comes from being in relationship with Jesus on Jesus' terms. I read a great C.S. Lewis quote on this a while back. It's awesome. It goes like this. I, Lewis, read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. If you can weave your way through the language. His words are so potent. Too often we fall into the trap of basing our assumptions of reality on what we think about God. 
We say things like, I don't think God is too worried about what I watch on television, or I'm pretty sure God has bigger things to deal with than my broken relationships. As if our thoughts about God set his trajectory. When the most vital, the most essential concern to us should be what does he think about us? What does he think about us? Are, are we simply a part of creation floating through life, stuck in an echo chamber of our own making? Or are we, as Paul says, God's handiwork, God's epic poem, God's masterpiece, God's beloved child, all terms of intimacy, all terms of being truly known. Jesus goes on in verse 28 to say this, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. A quick side note, this would have been shocking to all of the hearers around him in that moment. I mean, remember, these, these are the Jews that were like, we're in because we're Jewish. And they're, and they're saying, wait, are, are you saying that God's chosen people might be on the outside? And Jesus is like, maybe. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And so we come to the surprising twist in this story. On the heels of hearing that maybe not all of the Jews are going to get through the door, we learn that the narrow door will be an entry for all kinds of other people. People from the east and the west and from the north and the south. Remember the mustard seed? Do you, you remember the yeast and the starter? That tiny ragtag group of people will become a movement. And the last, or another way of translating it, the least of these will be the first. Those on the, on the margins, the, the powerless, most often rejected, they will be the first to be welcomed through the door. Surprise, Jesus is saying, I'm pushing the walls out on the house. I'm making it bigger. And praise God he did, because most of us wouldn't be there if he hadn't. And what's more is we also learn what is happening behind the door. A feast. It's like, it's like the airport luxury lounge, but like on steroids, right? And it's forever. This feast, being around a table, the imagery is like one of the primary descriptors in the scriptures for the kingdom of God. It's a table filled with more than enough for everyone. Where, where every seat is filled with family, where there's eating and drinking and laughter and joy. This is the kingdom. Reminds me of our last seek night. Like this, this is the kingdom as we come together. And, and it's contrasted with a place of weeping, pain, and misery. Words the Bible often connects with hell and Hades. And we don't have time to have that larger theological conversation here, but I want to drive home this important point. This passage isn't about staying out of hell. 
It's about striving, struggling, fighting to get through that door, to get into the kingdom. And as we come to the end of this passage, we're left with this like seemingly unanswered question. Okay, Jesus, but, but how? Like how, how do we get through the door? How do we become known, like really known by the owner of the house? If, if, if that's where the feast is and not being there involves things like weeping and gnashing of teeth and like, how do we get an invite to that party? Well, my friends, that's, that's the good news. Quite literally, that's the gospel. Jesus has already sent out 10 trillion invitations. We've already been invited. The thing is, you have to want to be there. Remember, remember that word agonizomai, like, like we have to fight forward to enter through the narrow door. This, this isn't salvation based on works. This is doing the hard work of relationship. Shelby shared this amazing quote with me from Dallas Willard. It's, a, it's about this very idea. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's the opposite of earning. So that grace that Jesus extends to us, it's not, it's not in opposition to effort. It's in opposition to earning. This isn't about earning, but it does demand effort. It's so good. Jesus gives us everything we need. So what does it look like to meet Jesus on his terms? How, how do we fight to get through that narrow door? Four words, four words come to mind real quick. The first one is the word hunger. We hunger, we, we acknowledge the need in our soul for God, acknowledging the fact that he will satisfy. He's the only one who can satisfy. If I was gonna use one word to describe this generation, it would be the word hungry, or maybe it's like sister word, thirsty. You can feel it in the air. I mean, everyone is desperate to fill the void, to fill that vacuous space inside of their chest. Help me know who I am. Help me get happiness. Help me get meaning. Help me deal with this nagging pain. A story that comes to my mind first is, is the story of the prodigal son, right? Desperate to fill the holes in his own soul, he takes half of all his father owns and goes on like a month, months and months and months long rager. Just partying every single day until finally one day he wakes up with his face in the muck. How did I get here? Like how, how did I get into this place? Not just hungry, but like, but starving. So desperate to fill those holes. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here this morning. And you call yourself a Christian. But your life right now, like when you look at it, it's like, how did I get here? And maybe you're still trying to fill those holes. Man, Tim, if you knew what I had done this Weak. I am the prodigal. That is my story. 
How did I get to this place of trying to fill the hole in my chest with everything around me and nothing fits? How did I get here? Or maybe you're, you're here even this morning in church and you're saying like, look, I'm doing all the things. I'm, I'm trying to do the Jesus-y stuff. My friends, church is not Jesus. Church is not Jesus. We're here for him. We are his family, but it's different than having a relationship with him. Only he satisfies. We need to acknowledge our need Acknowledge the hunger that's inside of us, the thirst that's inside of us, and then come to him and submit. The second word, submit yourself to God. What does it look like to get to the door? It means coming to him on your knees. How else do you come to a king? There's only one way. You only come to a king on your knees. Lord, this, this is my hunger, this is my thirst, and, I, and I'm bringing all I've got to you. I want to let you in on a secret. When you come to him that way, he lifts you up. You know, the wandering prodigal, knowing that his father had more than enough, like he knew that my, my, my father's got the stuff. Man, I, I, he, he like leaves it behind. And he says like, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be called a son. I'm going to go to my father and just say, make me a servant, father. Make me a servant. He comes humbly. And maybe you're here and you've tried. Like, you've tried to do the whole king thing yourself. And maybe you've even had some success. But there's something wrong. There's something missing. The kingdom that you're building, it feels hollow. Could it be? that God has more for you as a prince or princess in his kingdom than you could ever get as a king of your own? Could it be that that fight to be your own king is a war against being a prince in his kingdom? Could it be that God's dreams for you far outstrip the dreams that you have for yourself? Could it be that God is longing to simply lift you off the ground and put you on his shoulders like a proud father would to his son or to his daughter? What would it look like to acknowledge your true hunger, to humble yourself, and then to truly repent? Third word is repent, turning from sin and towards God because he is there. Shelby ended last week talking about how repentance kind of like brings our heart into alignment with God's. And this is because repentance is kind of a two-part act. It's this one part of identifying those broken spaces in our lives, the, the ways that we've gone to, you know, for food when we're hungry and for drink when we're thirsty and the ways that we've tried to build our own kingdom. We identify those things and then we turn our back on them and we walk towards our Father that's, that is the image of repentance. It just means turning. Again, we see the example in the prodigal son who gets up still covered in the slop of his sin and he turns his back on the pig pen and the life that it represents and he starts walking home. I wonder to how many people in this room that's a word. 
It's time to start walking home. Did he know that his father was waiting, looking to the horizon? Did he know that his father, upon seeing him, would like hike up his skirt to start running towards him? Did he know that the moment that he would start like running through his repentance speech that the father had already leapt past it, embracing his son in his filth, lifting his son in his arms, putting on the royal robes, putting on the family ring. The son had come for leftovers, but the father was having nothing to do with that. Go kill the fatted calf, bring out all the best that we have. We are having a feast. Because that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. My son, my daughter has returned. Let's throw a party. Hunger, submission, repentance, fighting our way forward in relationship. All of that is sustained through prayer. Fourth word. We got to pray. We want to get through that door. We've got to talk to God about everything because he's listening. And prayer, it's not, it's not just about trying to get stuff from him. It's about relationship with him. I wonder if that's maybe why he makes us needy in the first place sometimes. There's this other great quote uh, by George MacDonald that goes like this. If God is so good as you represent him. And if he knows all that we need and far better than we do ourselves, why should it be necessary to ask him for anything? Why pray? Answer. What if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? Hunger may drive the runaway child home and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Let that sink in. He needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion. A talking with God, a coming to one with him which is the sole end of prayer, yea, of existence itself. Beautiful, beautiful. We pray to know him, to really know him, to be in communion with him, that we might be invited to the marriage of the lamb. The beautiful images that we see in Revelation 19, verse 9, this party for all ages, the moment where the bride and the groom, they come together and Jesus is united with his people and we are together with him forever. That is the kingdom. I want to invite you to stand. My friends, I... My fear for the church today, the big C church of today, is that the enemy has either lulled us to sleep, we're asleep at the wheel, or he has convinced us that we cannot know this kind of love. 
So we get stuck. We get stuck asking questions like, am I in or am I out? Are they in or are they out? And Jesus calls us, just, just come. Like, stop trying to figure out who's in and out and just get through the door. We live in a time where the Spirit is calling his people back to himself, back to, the, back to Jesus, back to the Father. And we have an opportunity as followers of Jesus to see and to step forward. Yeah, but, but Tim, I've, I've been a Christian since I was like six and I've just been doing my own thing. I don't know if I even know what it looks like to come. Jesus just says, come, know me, love me, be in relation, talk to me, humble yourself, submit yourself, come. Yeah, but... Again, last week was horrific. If you would have seen some of the things I did this week, there's no way that Jesus wants me to come through that door. It's not for you to determine. You are not the one standing at the door. He is. And he beckons you to come. Church, are we going to wake up? The kingdom, it's in our midst. It's bubbling everywhere. We can feel it, can't we? It's time to stop playing, church. It's time to stop pretending like we're family and become a king, Jesus, family. And yeah, that's going to mean laying some things down. It's going to mean saying yes to things that you never thought that you would say yes to. But that is the kingdom. There's a feast waiting for us. And our God is our king. He loves us. And he just waits for us to say yes. The only people keeping us from getting through the door is us. Day is a day of salvation if you will only come. And you may have used the title Christian to describe yourself for years, but today is the day where you step through the door into the kingdom. Today is the day that we say, yes, we want it all, Lord. No more halfway. Why are we even doing this? We're just showing up to just go halfway. We gotta fight to get through the door. And when we do, you lift us up. You place us on our shoulders. Lord, that's what we want. This world has nothing for us. You are everything. And we're tired of eating mud and pretending that it's pie. We're, we're tired of, of trying to build our own little kingdoms. We want your kingdom to come. Break out. Do the same thing in our day that you've done in the past. Do it again here. Do it now, we pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. This is all about you.
Forgive us for when we've made it about us. We come with our hunger. We submit to you. We repent, we turn our back on our broken ways and we run to the Father because you run to us. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.